0: With America in this current fever dream of public protest and pandemic, it seemed like a good time to reach out to Bob Wick, the renowned sculptor who taught fine arts at Kent State College for years back in the 1960s. It is the 50th anniversary of the Kent State shootings. While Bob wasn't teaching at Kent State at that particular moment, he was well acquainted with key figures on both sides of that terrible tragedy in which the National Guard gunned down four students who weren't even among the protesters. Among Bob's close associates were Carl Oglesby, who helped found the Students for a Democratic Society, and journalist John DeGroote, who was part of the team that won a Pulitzer Prize for reporting on the shootings. Bob Wick is also my former boss, a lifelong friend, and my mentor. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Bob Wick. So I figured we'd call because it's the 50th anniversary, or was uh, recently, of the Kent State shooting. And I know that you grew up in that area and that you taught there. I know that you weren't there on campus at that moment, but you certainly uh, were part of that context that went on around that. And I just thought, It would be uh, illuminative for us to look at your experience and see maybe we have some lessons there for today with all the protests of the Black Lives Matter and the George Floyd murder and how things, you know, the state of play today, which doesn't seem to me like we've really advanced very far now. Um, just to set you up a little bit. I know the Port Huron statement came out in 64 and it was a very idealistic, um, very forward-thinking proposal from a group of student activists about the role, their role in society and them sort of entering the stage. And you were familiar with one of the architects of that, uh, Carl Oglesby. Maybe you can just talk about him a little bit and then That'll set us up.
1: Yeah, uh, Carl uh, was a very exceptional person, brilliant person. He, in high school, he had won the national oratory, and in fact, he had been first in debate, I believe. Um, and uh, so he had a keen mind, and also uh, and, and highly poetic too. He uh, had written some uh, plays and was actually. At one point trying to get Lee J. Cobb to be in one of his plays. Oh, really? So, Lee J. Cobb? That's great. Yep. Uh, and uh, he, uh, I knew him as a freshman. We were freshmen together. And in fact... Uh, we freshman kind of at Kent went, State? Yep. Uh, in Sto- old Stouffer Hall, which was a... Uh, and we didn't room together initially, uh, or we did not room together, but um we uh, entered and and conversed and uh, talked a lot in fact uh ironically he had um there was uh at because they were short of rooms a Palestinian boy named Ray Tabello, uh was his roommate and I remember him telling me, oh my God he said I'm just debating and fighting this guy emotionally intellectually all night long it's terrible, it's terrible. Well, course, when they, <laughs> When they got corrected, I end up with Ray Tabello, but he was re- for me, uh, he was remarkable, and very intelligent, very well educated, and uh, just had a heart like a mountain. Um, a heart like but, a mountain. I love that. Oh yes, he he was he was not a very big fellow, but extremely unique in many many ways. Anyway, yeah. um, I. I Carl, uh, one of my real memories of him. Of course, he, he worked in a pizza par pizza parlor and throwing the pizzas in the air, and having a cigarette dribbling out. Wow. Uh-huh. And that seemed to be the memory of a number of a number of other people too. Um, he uh, was at Kent for like a year or two. He, mar- he met his wife there and uh, got married and had a child, at least one child. Then he went. Um, to, because he had a support of family, he went to um, uh, up the University of Michigan and worked for the Bendix Corporation. And in the process of working with the Bendix Corporation, uh, one of the, uh, I believe, representatives from Michigan said, Leah, I'd like you to do some research on this Vietnam situation. And this would have been. Oh, the- yeah. So you
0: know. Bendix, uh, I don't remember much about them. They had a bunch of different uh, divisions, but weren't they like a think tank along the lines of the RAND Corporation or had some some contracts
1: like that? Yeah, they were high tech. Uh, They did high tech uh, jobs for the government and stuff like that. And that's so Carl started doing research in this. And ultimately, the more he researched it, the more he got upset. I already thought, oh my God, this is not where I want to go, and where America should go. Yeah, what year um, is this?
0: Would you? Um... The,
1: well, I'm I'm going to say I entered Kent in 53, so it was probably more like the latter part of the 50s, maybe early 60s, 61, 62. So at that point, we uh, had like yeah. a
0: few hundreds of military advisors, but after yep. the French left in 54, the foo Fu eisenhower administration started buying into the domino theory and vietnam was the domino that they had to prop up against the forces of communism which were very popular in some of these post colonial societies especially just uh so he came back from his or he learned as much as he could and got shocked by this long before these mobilizations and the war really started heating up in the uh, latter part of 63, 60, or after yeah. Kennedy, yeah.
1: He did, and and uh, while at Michigan, of course, he ran in a uh, Tom Hayden, and uh, together they were the first initial uh, president or vice president, whatever, of the uh, SDS, which is Students for Democratic Society. And at that time, they, they really... Uh, were the I would say probably most significant organizations. I think they were uh, very
0: much like the Black Lives Matter, except they were, you know, white and college students, but this was very much so and allied with the civil rights movement as well, the student
1: Mm
0: -hmm. uh, the SNCC and CORE and all these other groups and Bayard Rustin and Martin Luther King Jr., all these people, it was all in the same milieu.
1: Yep, yep. And, uh, and they established themselves in a number of locations in many of the universities, as well as in this bigger case, in my case, at Kent State University. Uh, I, I was intrigued with them and uh, did attend a meeting just to get a sense because I had heard so much about them. And I must admit that I was highly disappointed because it, it appeared to me at that time that here was an organization uh, that, yes, uh, they had uh, prof- professed uh, a high moral standard, but in after the meeting, it was just a lot of verbalization about, you got the power and I'm going to get it. And so yeah. it kind of turned me off. It turned me off very quickly. And, in fact, Oglesby uh, really um, had a... Tendency. Uh, I, I think he was, though he was a liberal, and but he was more conservative, and he wasn't into violence. He didn't. He didn't uh, feel that strongly. And a lot of the SDS people uh, profess that you know they were willing to get into violence if they had to, and, and that was yeah, nihilism. Yeah, 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 too much of it, unfortunately, at, at the time. Um, there was a, there was a quote which I want to read to you about what Carl was about, because once he got involved in this, his reputation grew, and then he would go to campuses throughout the country uh, talking about Vietnam, and uh, because of his brilliant oratorial qualities, um, he could sway people phenomenally. Um, There was a line uh, that I wanted to, I'm going to read something from actually his, his his obituary but I think it uh, gives a sense of what Ogilvy is about. He devoted much of the four decades after his work with SDS to investigating the Kennedy assassination, writing books that examined conspiracy theories. His most lasting legacy for many will be the words he wrote and speeches he gave opposing Vietnam War. To those who suggest, in quotes, I sound mighty anti-American. I say, don't blame me for that. Blame those who mouthed my liberal values and broke my American heart. He said in 1965 in Washington. At the end of the speech, I was something like a rock star, he wrote in his memoir. And I think that uh, he he just had a brilliant way of putting things together and really uh, gaining great support for his ideas
0: and thoughts. Yeah, and, and trying to keep yeah. the um you know the radicals at bay because the thing um that scares me are mobs. I think mm-hmm. people have an idea that they can whip a mob up into a frenzy and then direct it wherever they want to go. But uh, a mob is a different beast. It's not it's much more than the much more and much less than the sum of its parts much less intelligent and much more powerful and it can turn on you on a dime and i've seen that sense of you know whether it's even at a at a rock concert one of my favorite books of all time is elias kennedy crowds and power and he talks Mm -hmm. a lot about everything the deep psychology of crowds and how they work and all his great historical examples and i feel like that was a time when there were peaceful nonviolent demonstrations and the great moral suasion of that age but there was also Mm. a lot of looting and rioting going on and it does remind me of the era that we're in now although I do feel somewhat gratified that uh, there hasn't been as much looting or rioting and that the peaceful protests have prevailed. I think most people appreciate, um, you know the you know the greater morality of people out there trying to make the world a better place. I don't know what do you what's yeah. your take?
1: Well, I, I think uh, maybe because Martin Luther King had intervened, although many years ago, but had been a lawyer, a leader, and there are still some of these people who had worked with him, uh, who are still guides. And I I think that uh, at least in my eyes, uh, there seems to be uh, a more conservative way of trying to approach this, not through violence, but somewhat peaceful, definitely. And and that, that has really encouraged me because there was a lot of really Ah, uh, pretty powerful, uh, wicked stuff going on in the '60s, yeah. and uh, yeah, yeah. There, there were groups and that were uh, highly destructive. In and and often the tragedy was it was often in the black communities or places like that where the greatest damage was done. Yeah, the people who you had the least ended up
0: very, with even less. That's right. Yeah,
1: that's right. It, it was very, very, very unfair. I know. I I entered ironically. I. I came from a very, very conservative family and i was so i was a republican when i started out uh in college and uh you know it was the eisenhower years uh 53 and 57 and and that and i uh kind of uh it seemed like things were gentle and we were coming out of a terrible war and and uh and then it it's, it gradually evolved into this Vietnam situation that that dramatically uh, over a period of time became more and more uh, confrontational, more and more struggling, more and more fighting, uh, and and violence ultimately in, in many cases. Yeah,
0: the culture wars uh, really really amped up, and and uh, politicians, especially Richard Nixon, really knew how to play to that um, fear of. Chaos and unrest yeah, and that yeah. paranoia. Jeez. Really uh he was masterful at that, unfortunately.
1: Yeah. Uh well the thing about Nixon, uh, and I yeah, you know, I look back on him. Uh everyone a lot of people do see him as a kind of uh a devil in a way, I guess, or a predecessor of Trump, but candidly, uh he was number one, he was much more brilliant, he had a much keener mind than Trump ever could have. Uh he also had uh, a tremendous, he's probably the most knowledgeable man in America, a president we ever had in foreign affairs. And that's how he got into China and brought uh, China into the world scene. Uh, very dynamically, very creatively. But on top of that, he had, a, he had a sense of the general public in ways that Trump does not. He had proposed uh, a um, national... Uh, uh, which is what we call it a uh, oh guaranteed annual wage of ten thousand oh, yeah. dollars a
0: year, Min- and a lot of people oh, forget
1: God. that. Yeah, a lot of people forget that. And candidly, if yes, we had started that a long time ago, when you had done that. You'd probably be a hell of a lot more tempered in a lot of things that we're doing. I think so. I feel like that basic minimum
0: income. They always talk, you hear people railing against the moral hazard of giving people money for nothing. But people aren't just going to sit around on the couch and eat Cheetos. They're going to go out there and make art, and they're going to organize, and they're going to... Uh, they're going to have freedom to try, you know, different hustles, try to make, uh, right. make a living doing something else and have that freedom to do that. I really think uh, basic minimum income is an idea whose time has come, especially now with all the robots, Absolutely. robot apocalypse I, I, coming, taking all our jobs.
1: Yeah. The technology is wiping all the jobs out. And somewhere along the way, we have to realize that we're going to have to help the average man who cannot get a job because they're, because robotics and technology is taking all these jobs up. And, and, and because the, the strive is constantly for greater efficiencies, that's the ultimate end. Yeah, so, artificial intelligence. I, yeah, be, so yeah. I, I really feel like um, that he, at least in that sense, was ahead of his time and had some good aspects too. Yes, he, he did. He was a man. He couldn't necessarily... Certainly trust in a lot of ways either. But he certainly was a a man who far exceeded anything that Trump ever could be. Yeah, for sure. I think Nixon um,
0: was driven by this sort of resentment because he never would get uh, invited to the cool kids' table at
1: school. That's right. And he that's understood right. yep.
0: that a lot of people don't get invited to the cool kids' table. And that, that was his his target. Whereas Trump yeah. always, you know, he doesn't, he just sets up his own table and calls it the cool kids table and screw you. So he didn't didn't own, have that uh he didn't he doesn't he plays on those grievances and resentments but he doesn't do it with the uh, intellectual underpinning that uh Richard Nixon would and I don't know whether that's better or worse I really don't know. It's just different.
1: Yeah. Well, it is. I I do believe that regardless uh Ultimately, he walked away from the presidency when he realized that the situation was unfair, or I should say unfair, not unfair, but that he had made mistakes. And uh, he, in that sense, uh, ultimately, despite his underpinnings of, kind of underpinning the constitution at times, he ultimately did agree to it and walked away. I don't know if Trump will do that. I don't I think don't Trump either. only has two realities, his family's wealth, and his power. And that's it. There's yeah, nothing it's else. Just pure dominance. Thinks, absolutely. And if anyone thinks that he's out for the little guy, they're unbelievably naive. Obviously, the tax uh, bill that he passed showed that 83% of it went to 1% of the people, Yeah, basically. Ridiculous. And that. So yeah. I don't think that anyway, anybody really, yeah.
0: his supporters, I don't think that they're thinking, like, Trump's out for me. I think uh, the same people I hate, they hate Trump. That's so true. I like Trump. That's true. The enemy of yeah. my enemy is my friend. Yeah. I think that's <laughs> how, it, how he is, gets his 40% yeah. base. But it's going to yeah. be interesting. It's such a, um, I don't know, it just it feels like, now, to go back to that moment of ultimate tension at Kent State, I know we've talked about this in the past, but yeah. it's just fascinating to me. So, you had taught art at Kent State, yeah. and then you went yeah. into the family business. But didn't yeah. you come back to uh, is this Southeast Ohio? Didn't you come back to that area uh, after after Kent State, or that you were done with that part of your life?
1: Well, I, I when I I, I went um, from Kent, I got an undergraduate degree in journalism, and then I went. Uh, 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 actually got married uh, and had a, had a child, and then, um, but I found that all I was doing in my spare time was making art. And, and so there I, I was fortunate enough to go back to my dad and said, "Look, I need to try this again." So I went back to Kent, picked up an undergraduate degree and a, uh, from Kent uh, in fine arts, and then won a the scholarship at Cranbrook, which is outside of Detroit. Yeah, Mick Romney's uh, uh, old school. Yeah, and uh, got a uh, uh, master's in sculpture. And isn't and that then, supposed uh, to be
0: Cranbrook? I mean, not to get too far off course, but isn't no, that like one no. of the most beautiful campuses that we've, I mean, isn't it like Ironically, known for its yeah. uh, public art? and?
1: Yeah, just, it is. A, uh, they had a great uh, Swedish sculptor do the sculpture, Carl uh, Millis, and then Eliel Saarinen. Oh was yeah, the that's what I'm talking about. Who is Arrowsermons? Who, who had done the uh, Washington uh, Airport at the time, and also the arch, the arch in St. Louis. Yeah. So his father w- did the architecture, and it was, and ironically, it was created by a uh, newspaper tycoon who owned most of the major newspapers, in, including the, one of the Detroit papers in, in uh, Michigan. And then he put out, at the time, about $25 million to develop this place, and uh, he went after outstanding art- artists from um, Europe, uh, Seppeschi, Marigotel, the great potter, Carl Millis, uh, Sarandon, all these people, and made it a really um, unique place. Uh, yeah. oh, I, how amazing. I, yeah, and when I graduated, then I got got a job actually teaching sculpture at Kent. So I came back there and in uh, 1962, and was there till 69. And uh, during that period of time, obviously there was a lot of activity that started to uh, generate concerning uh, anti-war, anti-Vietnam.
0: Um, and you were still friends with Carl Oglesby during this time, and.
1: Well, off and on, of I would encounter encamp- yeah. And- yeah. I, I, I not too much. He had gone to Michigan, and then he went traveling around the world. But I did off a couple of times, two or three times, we uh, we got together, and that and. Uh, uh, but he had kind of gone his own way now. I mean, he got out of the SDS. He he was still opposing Vietnam, but he was on his own pretty much. Uh, he. Uh, traveled throughout the country, giving lectures and talking, and uh, drew, you know, excellent crowds throughout the time. Um, but uh, the situation at at, at Kent uh, kept getting worse and worse. The SDS kept getting larger, and the leadership from Kent State University was poor. Uh, the president White uh, was not a strong person; could not establish or work well. Um, and became, I think, very fearful, very negative. They did things that were, I personally felt, were very unethical, the university. It uh, didn't mean that the SDS wasn't doing some unethical things too. But i give you an example. I had a student in one of my drawing classes, a good student, but an older one. And he had uh, become involved in some of this uh, political activity that was going on. Well. The university decided that they were going to try and set up a situation that they were going to, how should I say, ostracize, kick out, or send off to jail these uh, people who were involved in the political activities against the war. And so on a Friday afternoon, they had made an announcement that they were going to have a uh, faux or false um, mock trial trial of some of the students. And Uh it was in the huge new music building. They closed the building off at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Then, um, and of course, they let the word out to all these uh, young people who were involved in trying to fight the Vietnam War. And so, of course, they wanted to get in. Well, they found an open window, which was I'm sure set up by uh, the political uh, university, and they crawled in, and they got in, and then they, they, when they got them all in, they arrested them all for breaking an entering, and this fellow who was a good student with me ended up paying one to two years at the Ohio State Prison. Oh my goodness. Like actually away. behind bars so that, for
0: breaking and entering yep, into, and,
1: and this was done. Yep. This, this was, was a setup by the university. It was a setup. And that, that's the kind of stuff that, that set the tone I, I, huh? I found unbelievably offensive on top of that. Th- there was a number of, uh, we, we taught in old barracks, World War II barracks that were still on the campus of the university. And one of the things that, uh, Word got around that the SES was one of these organizations was going to burn the barracks down. So everyone knew it enough. So all the teachers who often had, or professors who had uh, rooms in the, uh, their offices in these barracks, you know, went in, got all the records, pulled them all out and everything. Well, you know, <laughs> and there again, they burned the buildings down. Well, why in the world, everyone in the university knew this was going to happen? Why couldn't they have stopped it beforehand? It was ridiculous. All they had to do was put a bunch of police around there, and they would have got it before anything happened. Yeah. What I'm saying is, it was almost like setting up situations that were, I felt, very um, provocative, un- un- unethical, unethical, to end that. Um, and yet, uh, the SDS were, you know, they were threatening. There were threats, uh, and these were spread uh, by the university that they were going to have guns, uh, particularly on the May Fourth day. Now, what that was was a circumstance where you had uh, a lot of riding going on on the May Fourth, a lot of on the on the campus. Was there uh, an incident, or, or yes. well,
0: what was the uh, uh, cause of the? Wh- why were they demonstrating? Why was there a gathering on May uh, Fourth? I know I've read some of the chronology, but I can't
1: remember. Yeah, well, I from a specific standpoint, I don't know. Is it, it was just uh, I don't know whether it had to do with some of the bombings that were going on in in Vietnam at the time that Nixon was carrying out. Uh, I'm not quite sure what that was that it erupted or or brought it came to a head on May Fourth. But the tragedy of it was. That in Tucson, I'm sorry, not Tucson, in Cleveland, there was a, um, uh, the Governor Rhodes had sent uh, a, a, the, uh, not the reserves, but the uh, National Guard, National Guard, Guard units, right, units up to, to, uh, to Cleveland because there were a Teamster fights that were going up on. And, um, and so he sent them there to try and calm that area. Well, he decided on a short notice, hey, a lot of problems going on in Kent. Bring those National Guard down to Kent. Well, they did. And unfortunately, they had loaded pistols lo- and rifles. Um, I'm talking about loaded bullets. In other words, here are... My experience in, in my, in my reserve experience was that these people were not very well-trained and my own personal experience and that's the reserves, but it was national guard too. They and these are really mostly conscri-
0: conscription, they young, drafted.
1: Young, inexperienced, not well-trained and the confusion that happened when they brought them down to the campus, you had tear gas in this hollow, this big hollow, uh, and the uh, soldiers were on one edge of the hollow, and the activity was going down in the bottom of the hollow. But there was a, a lot of tear gas, and so it was difficult to determine often, even in a situation like that, when someone says halt or uh, you know, um, proceed with uh, their guns, it's a confusion, and it was a confusion, and the soldiers didn't know what to do. So there, there was a point where it appeared as if the commanding officer said, I want you to fire. And in that process of doing that, the soldiers said, you know, into themselves, I'm not gonna shoot these guys down there. I'm not gonna shoot them, I'll shoot them over their heads. But in this, the tragic situation was they didn't realize that across the hollow, sitting up on the other side of the hill, were all these people. Who
0: were not even involved.
1: Not even involved. Just watching this procedure. Literally just sitting there. And so they shot across the valley or across this hollow. Hit these people. Killing four students. Injuring nine. uh, And it it, it was just an an act, a constant act of ignorance. Not only from the soldier standpoint. And I don't blame them. I, I blame... The governor for yeah, the governor was People very, on the yeah. campus who were ill prepared Authoritarian. and did not know how to handle a, a, a an emotional, highly emotional and complex situation like that. It was it was ludicrous. Ludicrous. They and, and and of course one of the things they also said, well, why put why put my men with guns there? Because the SCS is gonna have guns and they're gonna shoot. That's what they said. Well, there wasn't any. There was no guns whatsoever. nor any shootings by by SDS or any students. Now, that was another kind of mythology was driving these people, you know. That there was going to be this major confrontation
0: and us versus them. And so highly polarized and tinder dry, ready to explode. So you um, feel like the governor deliberately made the situation worse or just uh, the tensions were already high? So sending the Uh, National Guard in was a a provocation?
1: Yeah, Uh, suits were brought both against the governor and the president of the university. Unfortunately, they didn't win, Uh, but uh, the the general public, a lot of the general public were very, very angry at how this has been carried out. And and, and tragically too, the, the university after this situation, There was an enormous amount of anger that prevailed between the university and the town. Uh, The the people in the town felt the university um, got out of hand and didn't do it correctly or didn't handle things well and then the the university was angry at the town, feeling like they didn't get the support they should have from them. Um, It it was a real uh, sad situation that lasted for literally for many years, many years. It's not true today. Today, the university and the town are wonderfully united, but uh, it took many, many years to come to a resolution and working those th- those um, differences out. So that the, there was a, a support on both sides for either side supporting the other. Yeah.
0: So anyway. I'm
1: curious about yeah. what uh, you've
0: now you met uh, John de Groot about that time or did you know him before? John DeGroot yeah. is a John, reporter yeah. who won a Pulitzer mm-hmm. for his coverage of mm-hmm. Penn State
1: shootings. Right. John, uh, uh John and I we were in uh John was a little bit of a rebel in his own right. In fact, he was <laughs> he, he was uh known quite a bit and been kicked out of school for a short period of time because he drove a motorcycle through a ROTC uh uh Drill, <laughs> drill, yeah, on campus. So they kind of kicked him out, but he ended up getting back in. And uh, yeah, we, we we became acquainted, uh, knew each other well. And uh, so John uh, took a job at the uh, Akron Beacon Journal at the time. And then when this uh, situation concerning Kent. Uh, started evolving and erupting, he was assigned, uh, and not alone, there were two or three other people who also were a part of that uh, Pulitzer um, window which they received. Uh, But John had a thorough knowledge of what went on and had done a really uh, phenomenal Mm -hmm. writing about what occurred there. Anyway, so, and I, I, uh, in fact, I, Utilized John over the years, and because he was also a very wonderful speaker concerning journalism uh, in our own newspapers. Uh, I know so I've he, been to, yeah.
0: I've heard him talk, and he, yeah, um, and I stole this idea from him because I do talks for journalism students in, in the area, and he would a- always show a slide of the cave paintings at Lacao, or I don't know exactly where they're from. But he would say, yeah. well, what's this? And people would, you know, give their various answers and he goes, yeah, that's mm-hmm. all right. But That that is journalism. That is the first example or an early representation of journalism. This is how people shape their stories by coming together mm-hmm. around, around this information. That's information. And that's uh, the whole beginning of that. And I, I always love the great uh you know example of how important journalism is from the point of view of a culture trying to find its narrative Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. all storytelling it all goes back to storytelling it's like wired into the architecture of our brain yep yeah
1: well john was good at that and he, he was a wonderful writer and he ended up working uh not in from Beacon Journal. He worked for the Miami Herald and also the Sun Sentinel in uh in uh Florida. Uh and that uh, so he yeah, had a long he has had a long history of yeah, right? a long yeah, a and, and distinguished years.
0: career. Absolutely. But uh, he made Absolutely. his bones there at Kent State, isn't that right? Yep, yep. Yeah. yeah. And, now, uh, what, what else do you remember about the campus culture at that time and, and the, anything about the aftermath? I know that you weren't there um, afterwards, well, but you must have still yeah, kept I, in touch with people and had some, some context.
1: Well, as I mentioned before, one thing is there were, of course, marches that went on on the campus, and I participated um, in those marches and Not a, not all, all the time, but occasionally I would do it when they were on campus in that because I believe that uh, you know uh, it was a mistake going into Vietnam and that needed to be, uh, it needed to be exposed, and it needed to be uh, supported and finally hopefully changed, which ultimately it did when they closed out the war and that sort of thing. But uh, I I have to say that there was just a lot of turmoil, a lot of um, differences, obviously not everyone was on the university was supportive of the war or against the war. And so you had different uh, political positions which took place between faculty, students, um, you know, conservative liberal attitudes. Uh, kind of probably like much, maybe somewhat true what's uh, going on today. Um, yeah, what do you think? But um... I, 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 I do believe, and because I came from a, uh, a very conservative, uh, and in fact, my uncle, uh, at the t- time when I was there, owned uh, Human Events, which was the largest uh, conservative Washington newsletter in America. And uh, so I had a lot of contact with the conservative side of things. And so I, I felt like there, there, was, there was a lot, a, a very good intellect that was going on, even from their side, even if you're different from it. Today, I, with with Trump, I I really do feel that there's not it, it's it's a kind of maybe because it comes from a a TV background, Trump himself that it's that it's very impulsive, it's very non thought yeah. out, very well, and it's just uh, you know um, I don't like this, so I'm going to do that. Yeah. I don't like that, and, a, and a sneering and
0: sneering a, contempt for uh, intellectual. Uh, exertions or achievements yeah. and science and that part of it really scares me yeah. i didn't know well, that that atavistic yeah. streak in our culture was so deep i know it was there it's always been there you know richard hofstetter yeah. wrote that great book the yeah, the uh, yeah. paranoid or the paranoid style in american politics yeah. and that goes all the way back to you know the no nothings and the, when the Whig party splintered in the 18th 30s and 40s the anti-immigrant base and all their conspiracies about the freemasons and everything that's a deep deep impulse there is a great book by kurt anderson who was with Graydon carter the co-founder of spy magazine he's done a bunch of other wonderful things but he wrote this book called um geez i'm blanking on the name of that uh book now but uh it was about the 500-year history of American weirdness and, and freaks and and uh, con men and grifters. And it just like you're reading this book and you're going, of, yeah, of course Trump's our president. How, well, what took so long? You know, that's... Uh, <laughs> nah, I got to look up well, this book now. I can't remember the yeah. name of it.
1: Well, I, I think one of the things that I've always felt was, despite the fact that we are now 250 plus years old, uh, and that, you know, so-called Western world has been here since, you know, about 500 years. The fact of the matter is, is that there is still very much an almost anti-intellectual attitude uh, that prevails in the context of, hey, all you have to do is be practical. You have to go out and get a job, make money and uh, make your wealth. And, 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 and the problem is, is that it becomes it too centered. And I'm, I'm for capitalism, but I'm for capitalism with wisdom and for capitalism with government controls. And I think the idea yeah. is,
0: rails. is the
1: attitude that we're, we're you know, you're, it's your job to go out and make lots of money and become wealthy. And, and the point of the matter is, is that there are too many other quests whether it be medicine, or whether it be the arts, or whether it be research, or whether it be intellectual universities or technology, areas that not in their own right are there just for the making of money, but for the enrichment of the culture as a whole. And and that's where we're kind of one-sided. I mean, I understand why a lot of people come to America to make a lot of money, because in a lot of ways, we certainly have set it up so that they could, and it's a dynamic. Yeah. No question, it's It's a so dynamic winner character. winner
0: take all uh, society. Yeah, though. yeah,
1: but it, but it's too lopsided. It's too one sided. It's too yeah, too so. stuck on this idea that that billionaires is if somehow or other they're great and you know giants of the world. Well, some of them are intellectually. There's no question that people like Gates or Bezos or some uh, that you know they're they're very outstanding in what they've done and how they've transformed the world, or or cook or you know jobs or stuff like that. But there's an awful lot of them that's it's just making money. You know, it's and and it's it an isn't. end
0: end in uh, itself.
1: Yeah, right, right. And 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 when your end in itself is only numbers, your society lacks the human depth and, yeah. and worth. It, you, you miss the humanity that is a part of a, a great play or the humanity that is a part of a great doctor or the humanity that is a part of, you know, a new invention that is not just for money, but is something, you know, that enriches the culture as a whole for generations to come. And there's, I mean, we, we pay more attention, uh, you know, to money making than we do. To creation and the creation of rich That's things right. what are that, the... that, that, that enrich the whole society and culture. That's where our tragedy often is and out of balance. Here, I mean, here. think about this. I'm not that I, I, I love great athletes, but if a great athlete, you know, makes $40 million a year and we can't pay our our, our teachers or we can't pay our policemen a good salary, that is a fair and decent salary. That because they put their lives on the line, and they do, but also are trained and also are taught to be socially conscious and caring, you know, this is where we're failing.
0: Yeah, I'm going to push back on that a little bit. Not that I disagree with you, just that in the case of uh, athletes, it isn't one or the other. It's not like if they don't make so much money, then this money is going to go to pay teachers and police. It's that... You figure football with thirty teams, forty-five people on the roster, twelve hundred athletes in the entire world of seven and a half billion people. I think that achievement should be rewarded uh, more so than you know the ownership. I mean, there—that's a cabal. Those league, those teams—they all work together to control the market and the prices. That's not capitalism. So the fact that these athletes do well, get sure paid it's a lot it's of
1: money. It's because yeah but you're you're getting you're getting a situation where television has done all this. Prior to television yeah. you did not have these super salaries and that's where it is. It's television has yeah. altered the whole climate and the whole character of this whole thing. And
0: the internet and yes, as well now.
1: Twitter yes. and all these other now. things
0: this constant and barrage
1: of stimulation. You know, when I was a I loved baseball and when I was a kid I remember, number one, at the two first people who ever got the first hundred thousand dollars salary were Joe DiMaggio and Bob Feller. Two great players. Great, oh yeah, that was players. was that
0: your team, yeah. the Indians? Bob Feller? The Indian,
1: absolutely, absolutely. So was it, rapid, the fact of the matter is, Robert. that Lou Gehrig, Lou Gehrig, in his whole career, one of the greatest players ever, only made thirty-seven thousand dollars a year. That's the highest he ever made. Now, if you're talking about it, that's unfair too because the fact of the matter is is that the owners so dominated the ballplayers that they couldn't get that's the right it was, uh, get close, so close it was a very unfair, and they, they and, leveraged until, against them It's terrible yeah, until kurt flood came along yeah and said i'm not going to do it this way and he's the one that really broke
0: that, broke it open with the free bond. agents yeah
1: absolutely but what oh it, there's what a I'm wonderful book is, you
0: love baseball you'd love this yeah. book this is uh A friend of mine here in Ojai wrote this, and he was the co-creator of Twin Peaks, but he writes these wonderful sports books, and it was called Game Six, about the Cincinnati Reds and the Boston Red Sox in 1975, Mm -hmm. but it's all about free agency and how baseball was changing and about how these players, you know, their history and how they all came together at that moment for that thrilling, thrilling game. Uh, Because that wasn't long after Kurt Flood. I think he was like in the late 60s and 75. So it was only six or seven years. Baseball was very much in flux. And there were very, very few players that ever had leverage to get decent salaries. Remember Babe Ruth got $80,000 in 1927 after dinging 60 home runs. And somebody goes, well, you're making more money than the president. And he said, yeah, I had a better year. (laughs) Yeah. But you th- sure. you love that book. Uh Mark's yeah, a wonderful uh, writer. He really puts you puts you there, okay. but I love baseball I, too. I you know, you taught me how yes. to throw a curveball, which I've always <laughs> been a pitcher. I was a pitcher until yeah. uh you know, seven or eight years ago when I ruptured my shoulder. Um mm, and awesome. uh that that was a good pitch. I took pitching coat, I went to this triple A pitcher. Here in uh, Oxnard, not too far away, gave me some lessons, and it extended my career at least five or six years. And I had a wonderful time, and i was hung up my cleats before I started to fall apart. Because I see guys well, that don't know when to quit.
1: Anyway, what I was going to also continue on about baseball, because I think there these many of these things are out are, in my eyes, out of balance, proportion to what I think are really valuable in the community. And I think, so do I, would I be upset, uh, you know, a ball player making 2 million or 5 million? Absolutely not, that's not it. But I find that that what happens is in so many cases, you know, uh, whether people on Wall Street make, you know, $500 million in a year or a billion dollars in a year, obviously there's something askew, you know? Because all it is is moving numbers. It's moving numbers. I don't mean you have to be brilliant to do it and do it right, but I also think that somehow, our, our, do does Wall Street really enhance the whole public other than making them just wealthy? But does it do it in a way in which the culture becomes gr- much richer and finer and magnificent? I don't think so. Not that much. I don't think so. Not proportion.
0: Not proportionally. I th- I that's it, the key thing. Yeah. Yeah. I do think well, anyway, that the, uh, you know, Wall Street, pro, uh, the number one thing that it does is this velocity of capital. I'm sure you've heard that term before. Yeah. Making yeah. transactions as frictionless as possible so people can. The faster
1: and faster. The more faster yeah, they move, the and more, the more, you more you make. efficient the uh move. Yep. Yeah.
0: Yep. So I think there's some anyway. value in that, but not uh, these oh. ridiculous things. So when you talk about, you know, if, if uh, you know, uh, God, I'm blanking on his name now. Alex I guess makes uh, whatever is was for over a hundred million dollars. Well, that's nothing. Hedge fund managers,
1: and oh, they they don't
0: provide anywhere near as much enjoyment mm. or no. uh, value. I feel as well, uh, as a baseball player at the top of his game, just the entertainment value. So no, I don't I know. It's I, like here, I don't have any
1: answers. Here's the contrast: is that when I was a kid. The, most of these ballplayers who I knew, and I sat down next to Gil McDougall and Log Yogi Vera, I mean, uh, on my honeymoon morning. Uh, uh, what? Yeah, I haven't Cleveland, heard this story. Yeah, yeah, at the at the Cleveland, uh, uh, Gil McDu- uh, McDougall and Vera and uh, my, Vera and I was trying, and I couldn't get over how scarred Vera's face was. I mean, it was really scarred and uh, from acne. And uh, he was a very ugly little guy, great ball player, but ugly and guy. A Brilliant. But anyway, wit. the thing about that was was that uh, there were a lot of major league ball players, believe it or not, when I was a little kid, who had to work a second job off at a gas station during the off season because they oh, yes. earned so little. I mean, it was like five thousand or ten thousand dollars, and they were amazing. Yeah, yeah, I mean it was crazy. Um, so I thought, gee, what a tragedy. These guys who have this great talent and only give them at the best 10 or 15 years at the best is gone. And then they're, what do they do? Go out and have to operate at a gas station you know, the rest of their lives? So that was unfair. So I supported yeah. those salaries getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It's just that the influx of the television, the influx of a lot of other, other kinds of things distorted a lot of these things so that. Enormous amounts of money were made. I mean, what? Bezos, in the time of, of uh, uh, coronavirus, gained twenty-five billion dollars in two months. Twenty-five billion dollars in two it's months. That's un- unimaginable. There's something wrong. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that, his wealth. I mean, there's there's obviously something askew. That's not it's right. Not- it's not right for the society as a whole. I think we're in yeah. another anyway, era of robber
0: barons. So I think this is just another yeah. variation of Stephen J. Gould and the Fisks and yeah. Andrew Carnegie and all these people are now the Bezos and uh, and the uh, Tim Cooks well, and
1: here, here's a, here, Mark Zuckerberg. Here's a man who's 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 uh, yeah and who's our president uh, who admires Putin, admires the North Korean leader. Admires loves him, some dictators. Uh, loves dictators because he wants to be one.
0: He's and, totally and authoritarian. Him.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, doesn't matter how many people you kill or how many people you hurt, which these people are willing to do at any one time, that's not fair. I mean that's not decent. Is that a democratic way? I mean, come on, this not I don't know. I just hope I don't have any answers. It can be corrected in the near future. I don't anyway. know.
0: What what um, do you think? Uh yeah, you've been uh, we've been yakking for a while. To, to wrap yeah. it up, I was just like, what are you working on now? Just so people know, you are a literally a monumental sculptor. You work in huge bronzes that are just amazing. And I always feel like... You told me a story about that book that came out in 2007. I think you know the wife of the author. And he said that bronze, which is your medium... Will oh, yeah. outlast every other human achievement that there was will, bronze will last 25 million years or something, something no, like that, 10 million, 10 million I years. Think
1: 10 years. That's going to be yeah. like
0: these archaeologists from the future. That may be all that they know about our time is your work, Bob, and those sculptures that you're <laughs> making.
1: What are you working on now? Well, well, I'm working on a large 10 foot figure walking figure. Um, which has saguaros because I use plants and living plants and trees in my sculptures as saguaros, all lined up on the shoulders of this figure that has the arms spread out and it's called mother saguaro. And it's, it's the union. The, the real idea of my work is to try and bring a union of man, geology, uh, archeology, span Uh, living plants and trees, flora, and bring them together because we are this, um, what I often say, a recent manifestation of this earth. And we are the earth and the conscious earth. So that's what these pieces portray.
0: That's beautiful, that's a beautiful sentiment. Maybe I'll put some, uh, when I post this online, I'll put some of the photos of your art on there because it's so staggeringly beautiful and it's exactly. so. Yeah. It's just so uh, has and such I such guess, presence. I guess
1: I want. I want to see us, not as human beings as a separate entity from the earth, but one with, with, and of the earth. And I, I often say, until you can grow a tree, in your heart, you'll never understand the oneness of all things, because we all are one. Everything here, everything you see, as Buddha would say. What's outside is inside, what's inside is outside. It's all one. And that's what we need to expand in our own sense so we can become fuller and more mag- more magnificent and more oneness with all of the earth and all living things. Well, that's and a great way to, to close that's it out.
0: Hope. That's a really wonderful that's segment. Fair. Thank you. Uh, it's like, you're, you are Congrats. one of my favorite people on earth and I love you. And I uh, really, it just <laughs> ah, brings uh, great surely joy to my life. Thank you for that. Uh, great chat. Right. And uh, we'll talk soon.
1: Too. Okay. I'd Thanks, Brett. Bye-bye.
0: Just thinking out loud, talking with my dear friend, Bob Wick, got me thinking about the context of the times in the late 1960s and early 1970s. We think we live in an age of division and rancor and we do But we do well to remember that this country has been divided before. The Civil War, for one thing, elements of which, the racial discord especially, we are still battling to this day. And in 1968, two years before Kent State, the nation was bitterly wounded by the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, who had just won the California primary and was the presumptive Democratic nominee for president when he was gunned down in a hotel kitchen in Los Angeles. A couple months earlier, it was left to Kennedy to break the bad news to a largely black crowd in Indianapolis that Martin Luther King Jr. had been gunned down in Memphis. In the hours after the assassination, rioting broke out in many major cities across the country, but not in Indianapolis, because the crowd heard the words of Kennedy, heard his compassion and sadness, and knew, since his brother had also been assassinated a few years earlier, that he spoke with a moral authority and authenticity and clarity that he alone possessed. Bobby Kennedy, standing on the bed of a truck, surrounded by people, speaking with no notes, told the audience what had happened to the beloved civil rights leader. Then he quoted from memory these wonderful lines from Aeschylus. Even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until, in our own despair, against our will, comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. He continued, What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness but as love and wisdom and compassion toward one another and a feeling of justice towards those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black. In any event, thank you for listening. That's it for this episode of Ohio Talk of the Town. We'll keep an ear out for you.